Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review. If you really enjoy it, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash Bairdo. That's B-A-I-R-D-O. Now when we look at Canada's history, war has always been a part of it, in one way or another. There was, of course, the War of 1812, the Boer War, the First and Second World Wars, as well as Korea and Afghanistan. These were all foreign wars, though, with the exception of the War of 1812, and Canada does seem to have an absence of major wars fought on its soil. But that doesn't mean that Canada is free from wars on its soil, and one of those wars was the Fraser Canyon War, also known as the Miners' War a war in our borders that has long since been forgotten. First, some background. In 1858, the Fraser Canyon was going through a monumental change thanks to gold. Any time in world history where gold is discovered, people flock to the region to get that gold. Canada has seen two major gold rushes in its history, the famous Klondike Gold Rush and the lesser-known Fraser Canyon Gold Rush. Now, gold had been discovered on the Thompson River in British Columbia near present-day Lytton. The area itself had been mined for several years for gold, but the gold rush began when James Douglas, the governor of the colony of Vancouver Island, sent ore to the mint in San Francisco. News quickly spread, and within one month, around 30,000 people were descending upon Victoria at a time when the village had a population of about 500. Many thousands of those miners would not make it to the Fraser Canyon due to high water levels, but many others would come to replace them, going into the Fraser Canyon and mining for gold. Now at the time, taking any route but one from Victoria was illegal, but that did not stop miners from just coming over the border and traveling to the Fraser Canyon without going through Victoria. And at its peak, it's estimated that 10,500 miners were in the Fraser Canyon, and that number does not even include the thousands who were there making money off the miners. The huge influx of gold miners to the colony of British Columbia caused a severe problem for the Hudson's Bay Company. At the time, fur traders with the company and the indigenous peoples of the area had established a balance, and Sir James Douglas, who was also the chief factor of the Hudson's Bay Company in the area, was worried that the balance would be destroyed. The indigenous of the area also knew of the gold and had been selling it to the Hudson's Bay Company for years, which is how news began to spread through that shipment of ore. Douglas would eventually write to Edward Stanley, the British Prime Minister, over his worry of this influx of miners, stating, I am now convinced that it is utterly impossible, through any means within our power, to close the gold districts against the entrance of foreigners, as long as gold is found in abundance, in which case the country will soon be overrun. And this is where tensions begin to rise in the Fraser Canyon, as those miners begin to arrive. Now, I'm hoping I pronounce this correctly, and I do apologize if I don't. But the Nalaka Pamu people lived in the canyon, and tensions began to rise as the miners came into their land, disrupting everything in the area and disrespecting the indigenous people. In July, 25 miners who traveled through the Okanagan Valley destroyed the provisions at an indigenous camp, killed a dozen indigenous people, and injured just as many. Add in the severe disruption of the 1858 salmon run because of the miners, which impacted the Nalaka Pamu, and it was a situation that was quickly escalating. 
Douglas worried about this, and he wrote to his superiors in London, stating, It will require, I fear, the nicest tact to avoid a disastrous Indian war. Things moved slowly, unfortunately, and by the time the British began to restrict entrance into the country through Victoria, thousands of miners had already arrived. Now, the war is believed to have started when a young Nalaka Pamu woman was sexually assaulted by a group of French miners near Kanakabar. In retaliation, the Nalaka Pamu allegedly killed several of the miners, decapitating them and dumping their bodies in the river where they were found near the town of Yale, the main centre of the gold rush. Another party of First Nations apparently sparred with the group of miners and disposed of their bodies in the same manner that had occurred in Yale. Douglas would write to London, The white miners were in a state of great alarm on account of a serious affray, which had just occurred with the native Indians, who mustered under arms in a tumultuous manner and threatened to make a clean sweep of a whole body of miners assembled there. An American company of militants soon organized and they killed upwards of 36 indigenous people between August 9th and August 17th, including five chiefs. They also wounded many, took three prisoners, and burned five Nalakapamu villages to the ground. One observer said that the company of miners just killed everything, men, women, and children. Now many of the miners who'd come to the area wrote about the growing hostilities in their journals and letters home. The following was written by George Wesley in a letter home. The Bostons and Indians have been fighting for the last 10 days and has been a great many killed on both sides. The Indians have stopped the miners from going up through the canyon. Down at Union Bar, they got five men out of the river that were shot by Indians. They had their heads cut off. All well in camp. Six more regiments were soon organized to respond to these attacks, which many were calling an act of war. One company, called the Austrian Company, was composed by French and German irregulars who had served with William Walker in his campaign in Nicaragua in 1853 and had come to California soon after. Another regiment was formed called the Watcom Company, under the command of Captain Graham. The regiment was of the type that felt, and this is their words, the only good Indian is a dead Indian and they were named for the Watcom Trail, which today is in Washington State, and was used in open defiance of the British edict that access to gold fields be through Victoria only. The New York Pike Guards, under the command of Captain Snyder, were the largest and strongest company formed, and unlike the Watcom Company, they were not looking to wage a war of extermination, but one of pacification. Snyder wanted there to be a distinction between friendly indigenous and warlike indigenous, and he also asked that messengers be sent up the canyon ahead of the advancing companies for friendly indigenous to display a white flag as a sign of peace. As could be expected, the sight of several headless bodies really freaked out the thousands of miners who were in the area. Soon after this incident, miners began to flee from the riverbanks north of Yale, choosing the safety of Spuzzum and Yale. The miners began to hold meetings to assess what to do about the entire situation, so the company soon left Yale and progressed up to Spuzzum where they found 3,000 miners who were panicked and encamped in a small area, worried for their safety but unwilling to move south. The New York and Austrian companies journeyed north and found no resistance. They sent messages to Camp Chin, an ancient settlement of the Nalaka Pamu people, stating they were coming to make peace, not war. Unfortunately, the Watcom company and its leader Graham rampaged along the west bank of the canyon, destroying potato fields, indigenous food caches, and thankfully, encountering very few of the indigenous people. Now that night, the Watcom Company would be completely wiped out. 
While you may think it was because of an indigenous attack, this was not the case. A panicked reaction to a rifle falling and misfiring caused a melee of shooting in the company that left only two men alive, with the rest dead after shooting each other in the dark, believing it was a First Nations attack. In response to the companies of men looking to make peace, or war, depending on which company they belonged with, the Shushwap, the Lakapamu, and the Okanagan First Nations all began to meet. The Nalakapamu leader urged other assembled warriors to wipe out the miners, but Splitlum, the chief of the Kamchin, who had good relations with the Hudson's Bay Company, argued for peaceful coexistence. At the same time that the war council was being held on August 22nd, Snyder and another company captain, Centrus, came. They were given the right to speak, and they told the indigenous that if the war was to continue, white men by the thousands would come and destroy the indigenous forever. Later, Snyder would say that it was showing the indigenous their modern rifles that caused them to make peace. But this is not the case, as by the time both men had arrived, the decision to make peace had already been made. Now, while they don't survive to this day in written or oral form, the Snyder treaties were made to offer coexistence in the canyon and the working of the gold fields. And the war effectively ended, and it is not known how many died, but figures range between a few dozen to thousands. But thousands is unlikely. Most likely, a few hundred. Now peace came thanks to Split Lum, who decided to accommodate the miners even though they had arrived without permission and disrupted the salmon fisheries and laid claim to their resources. One interesting thing about this is that Snyder convinced the Nalakapamu communities in the canyon to fly white flags to symbolize peace. But for the Nalakapamu, white was the color of sickness, of death in the spirit world which is symbolic of the loss of their way of life with the arrival of these American miners. Now with the return of the war companies to Yale, Governor Douglas and the Royal Engineers arrived with 20 Royal Marines to take control of a situation that they worried would lead to the U.S. annexation of the area. They arrived on September 13th, and Douglas was already angry that a California system of claims was being implemented outside the bonds of British law. He was also angry that the American miners had made treaties with the First Nations, even though he believed it was the job of the British to do that, since they had held the territory. And he reprimanded the miners for ignoring British law, and the miners agreed to follow the law from that point on. Douglas also met with the Lakapamu and guaranteed them reserves in the canyon, and prohibited the sale of alcohol to all indigenous people. Douglas also had proper town sites drawn up for Yale and Hope, and appointed a chief of police and five constables. This was all done within a week, and Douglas was on his way back home to Victoria by September 20th. With all of this, the brief war was over, but another one was on the horizon. McGowan's War. But that war is one for another episode. Now in 1927, a monument to Chief Splitlum was erected at Cumsheen to commemorate his role as being a peacemaker. Now the Fraser Canyon War is mostly forgotten, but it would play a significant role in Canada. The British asserted themselves over the region to prevent American takeover through Douglas proclaiming sovereignty over the Fraser Canyon as part of the Crown Colony of British Columbia, and this would eventually lead to all of British Columbia becoming part of Canada in 1871. Information for this piece comes from Wikipedia, the Canadian Encyclopedia, the Globe and Mail, and the overview of the Fraser River War. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Canadian History X, and if you did, please give a like and review. You can reach me through email at crwbeird at gmail.com. 
and you can find hundreds of articles on my website at CanadaX, that's ehx.blogspot.ca.